little child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We are marching through a series of Christmas messages where we're talking about how Christ was not just born a long time ago in Bethlehem, but that God can be born anew within you and me in our moment in time. And so we're seeing from the different vantage point of the different characters in the Christmas story how God brought unique gifts neat kind of growth in their character to each and every one of them. So we're talking about a teenager's faith and a carpenter's courage, a scholar's hope, a shepherd's humility, and a father's love. And today we're talking about that scholar's hope. And you might be scratching your head thinking, I don't remember there being scholars in the Christmas story. Scholar is the term that Eugene Peterson said is the best translation for the word magi, a wise person. They were the ones who studied things, particularly the nighttime skies. I want to begin our journey of hope today by asking you to turn to somebody next to you and answer this simple question, what's the longest road trip you've ever been on? Turn to somebody next to you, I'm going to put a map up here to remind you, what's the longest road trip for you? I didn't ask you to say what happened on the road trip. I asked what the road trip was. I love the energy in this sanctuary today. Well, the longest road trip that I've ever been on was when I jumped into my green Ford pickup truck from Central Texas in this location and drove all the way up to Princeton, New Jersey for seminary. It took two and a half days, had a small U-Haul behind us with all the stuff in it. Um, we you know, were sustained along the journey by going to Cracker Barrel, to Cracker Barrel, to Cracker Barrel, to Cracker Barrel in order to be able to get to our final destination. It's about 1,600 miles, which interestingly enough to scholars' best guess is about the distance that we project that the Magi or the wise men would have taken on their journey. Our best guess is that it started in this region, uh, kind of what today is southern Iran or would have been Persia back then, and that it was about 1,600 miles. Um, it's 442 hours if you're walking nonstop. Funny enough, when you put in this pedestrian thing to Google Maps, they suggest that you don't do this. As you walk through Iran and Iraq and Syria, that there might be kind of some trouble spots along the way and you might have some inconvenient border crossings. But what's interesting is that that journey is, is dangerous today. It would have been just as dangerous back then. I mean, if you think about it, uh, a lot of it is an arid kind of desert-like place. Where would you get the supplies? Uh, these were people who were traveling, and they would have brought with them incredible wealth, and so they would have been subjected to kind of the vulnerability of bandits or thieves along the way. And so our best projection is that this would have taken, you know, potentially a couple of months in each direction for them to go on this quest. That's a long way to go, and so you've got to ask yourself, why? Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? 
We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went on ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. It's a long way to go. Why on earth did they make this trip from so far away to see and celebrate the birth of a child. Well, there's a lot of different theories that kind of come up in the research. Some people think that they were bored and didn't have anything better to do. Strike that one off the list. A lot of people think that they were heavily superstitious and they saw something that disturbed them or excited them in the skies. And so they made this long journey. That doesn't make sense for something that's such a grueling trek. Uh, Some people feel like that they were obligated. In other words, we don't know the backstory properly, but somebody sent them in order to kind of a royal delegation to this particular birth, but there's no hint at that in the text. I think the only thing that can make someone go that far willingly on their own is that they were filled with hopeful anticipation that something remarkable, something special something cosmic was truly at play. Let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. The catalyst of the event is that of a celestial, heaven-like, star-like event. And we don't know exactly what this celestial event was, but scholars today have an idea. It's just an educated guess because we don't know exactly what it was that was taking place in that moment in time. But here's our best guess of what was happening at the time. Around the time of the birth of Jesus was the alignment of two significant heavenly bodies. It was Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter was known as the heavenly being of that of kings, and Saturn was kind of the celestial thing that was identified with Israel. And they have identified that on three separate occasions around the birth of Christ, that there was this unusual alignment that took place three separate times right around the birth of Jesus. And so scholars project back that maybe they're looking at the nighttime skies and that they see a king in Israel, a king in Israel, a king in Israel, lining up again and again and again, and they think, we have got to go see this king. Now, that only tells part of the story because regime changes were quite common back then. I mean, you could have a king every 10 years. It could be a generation, so it could be 30 or 40 years. But was it really worth going all of that way for just kind of the handover of power from one 
king to another in an occupied territory in a very small, seemingly insignificant part of the world in the grand scheme of things. I mean, this wasn't like a Roman emperor changing over. So what gives? Well, the best advice that we can try to figure out in piecing together the story is that these were Jews who during the time of the Babylonian exile or the Persian empire's invasion and exile, that they were likely people that lived in this far east area of kind of Persia. And so that they had been for hundreds and hundreds of years, Jews that had been living far away from their homeland, but even though they've been living away from the temple, even though they've been living away from their home community, that there was a small, tightly knit community of believers that were a part of this diaspora, this spreading, that they were in exile. And when they saw this heavenly event, they knew that this wasn't just the prophecy for one regime change to another, but that this was the king of kings who was going to be born. And so they took their wealth and they took all of that time and they went that whole journey to fall down and to worship the child. In other words, think of it this way. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they have lived in exile clinging to the promises of God in an isolated and foreign place. And finally, they think it's happening. Hundreds and hundreds of years, they never lost their hope. Have you? I want to tell you the story of a man by the by his, by his name is Dieter Zander. Uh, he's a friend of John Ortberg's, and John tells the time of when they were both working at a large church, one of the highest profile congregations in the United States and the Midwest. And while they're there, Dieter is at the apex of his game. He is a worship leader. In fact, there are times John Ortberg said that he would lead worship and that when he led worship, there were certain songs that he could no longer sing because the balconies would jump up and down so much that the structural engineers are like, you cannot play that song anymore. Something's going to fall. And so he is filled with this great joy, this great leadership. Thousands upon thousands of people come to sit under the leadership of Dieter as he plays the instruments and leads the people in worship. He and John were both young at the time, and they would study together, but particularly there was the study together that they did with Henry Nouwen. And there was a verse that stuck out for them from a Henry Nouwen work that talked about how when you're young, you'll dress yourself, you'll go wherever you want to go, but when you get older, someone else will have to dress you, someone else will take you by the hand, and they will take you where you do not want to go. John reported that he and Dieter were both young at that time, so that they thought that that was cute and poignant when they looked ahead at that. But in his 40s, One night, Dieter had a massive stroke in the left portion of his brain. He lost the function in his right hand. He had to relearn to say the name of his wife and the name of his children. 
and the man who once stood before adoring crowds of thousands now worked in a windowless room in the back of a Trader Joe's with his good left hand sorting out fruit, bad ones from good ones, the ones that people would buy, and the ones that people who were so hungry and poor they didn't care if their fruit was misshapen. In his book, A Stroke of Grace, Dieter writes this. It is good that I work there. I am like that fruit. I am imperfect. Inside, I'm the same person, the same sense of humor, the same thoughts, but my words betray me. What should take three minutes to stay is an hour of frustration. People lose their patience with me. Aphasia means aloneness, but God hears me. My world is small and quiet and slow and simple. No stage, no performance, more real. And then he writes the shocking word, good. It was about a year after his stroke when Dieter went to go visit John and Nancy and their home in Northern California. And while they were there, Dieter had a small dry erase board that he could write on because sometimes with his left hand, he could write what he needed to say easier than he could get the words to come out. He took the dry erase board and on it, he wrote the verse, John 21, 18. And John said he knew what verse he was going to draw even before he had finished it. A verse that says, when you're young, you'll dress yourself and you'll go wherever you want to go. But when you're older, someone else will have to dress you. And you'll be taken where you don't want to go. And then underneath the verse, Dieter wrote one word. Good. Imagine that. Imagine having seemingly lost so much and yet still clinging to the goodness of God. I sure hope you understand that hope is not in the life of Dieter or what in the nature of faith is not blind optimism. It is not wishful thinking. And so let me define hope for you. Hope is a confident longing for God's promises. It requires this fire, it requires this passion, it requires you clinging to something. And the thing that we cling to is not just that things will be better, but that the promises of God are secure, that there really is an anchor for our soul. And that it requires both the passion and the longing to not lose that as well as the promises of God. Did you notice in today's story that for the Magi, for the wise men, that the stars could only take them so far? That when they got to Israel, that they needed to consult the scriptures, that they needed to go and to talk to the scholars of Jerusalem, that the, the prophecy for them was incomplete until they could see the scriptures for themselves, that they could unroll the scroll and they could say, yes, it's supposed to happen in Bethlehem. And did you notice the detail? 
Did you notice the fact that here you had these three wise men who came 1,600 miles or so in order to find this new king that is to be born? They consult the scholars. One set of scholars comes. There's a set of scholars in Jerusalem, and they say, we're going to go find this child. And the scholars in Jerusalem say, okay. And that not a single one of them would make the five to ten mile journey to Bethlehem to look for themselves. I shared with you at the beginning of today's message my long road trip from central Texas to New Jersey. After a couple of semesters of seminary under my belt, studying theology and history and the original languages and saturating in the Bible, there was a certain measure of cynicism that started to set in. Some of the most jaded people I know work in churches. Some of the most skeptical people I know teach in our seminaries. You can be really close to the scriptures. You can be really close to the promises of God. You can be this close to Bethlehem and you can miss it even though people are traveling a long way away to see it. I was losing the fire. I had the scriptures. I had the promises. But I was losing the longing And were it not for a handful of people and friends who poured into my life to remind me why I came all that way in the first place, I don't know where I would be. What about you? Are you the kind of person who has grown up in a church, is really familiar with the promises of God? You know the Bible stories. Have you lost the longing? Has the fire of anticipation gone out? Have you let go of your hope? It's interesting to me, one of the trivia kind of parts of this portion of the Bible is to, is to ask people, how many, how many wise men came to the birth of Jesus? And the answer is, we don't know. We say that there's three kings. We sing about there being three kings because there were three gifts. So we're like one per king. That makes sense. Boom, it's set in stone. Actually, we don't know. Here's what we do know. We do know that it was in the plural so that it was more than one. So here's what that means. For hundreds and hundreds of years, far away from the temple, far away from the scrolls, There was a community of people that never lost their hope. They kept reminding one another, kept celebrating one another, kept clinging to the promises of God. And as they did that, they never let go. They held on to their hope. They had one another, a friend, to encourage them when things got hard, do you have that? Do you have someone to encourage you to not give up? 
There was a 32-year-old man who thought that his life was almost over. He grew up in poverty and had become quite successful professionally, but then a setback in the economy and he lost it all. But he didn't just lose it all, he lost his reputation, he lost um, not just his fortune, he lost favor with friends and with family. It was a very public failure. He was engaged to a woman and called off the engagement. His best friend was moving away. His other friends literally went to his home and removed sharp objects from the home because they were concerned that he might hurt himself. He was in a tailspin of despair. In the midst of that despair, he wrote these words. I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better. I can write no more. That is where the letter crash lands. He was bedridden. Several reported that he was babbling incoherently, and at least one friend said they thought that he was going crazy. But there was one friend, a man by the name of Stephen Logan, who had not given up on him. And for the better part of a decade, helped him to start to put the pieces of his professional life and his personal life all back together. Stephen Logan wrote this. He says, it does not depend on the start a man gets. It depends on how he keeps up his efforts. And so he encouraged him, keep up your efforts. You can keep doing this. He encouraged him. He gave him a place in which to stand. And imagine, imagine where we'd be if Stephen Logan, for the better part of a decade, had not given up on this man. I'm describing Abraham Lincoln. And where would we be as a country? Where would we be as a people if that 32-year-old had not had a Stephen Logan in his life? Do you have that person? Find that person. Find a person that would travel this distance to come alongside you, to bring you to your knees into the place of truth and adoration and worship. And you need to know that that distance on the screen is nothing compared to the distance that our Heavenly Father went in bringing Jesus to us. You think the wise men came far? Imagine that God traveled through all of time, through all of eternity, through all of space, through all of the heavens in order to be near to you. Don't give up hope. God has come. He's been born and he will find you.
Let's pray together. God, many of us are experiencing the perils and the dangers of our journey of life. And we have forgotten why we are here. I pray, God, that you will fill each person here with a hope-filled anticipation, that you will give us the catalyst that we need to discover that a new king has been born. Help us in the midst of our exile, even if we feel like we've been spread apart for too long. Help us throughout all the years and the centuries to not lose our hope. Thank you, God, for the stroke of grace that you have given to Dieter and to many others to remind us that you never stop working, you never stop loving, you never stop giving hope, even in the most hopeless of situations. And so forgive us for our blind optimism and our wishful thinking and help us now to have that anchor for the soul, that confident longing of your promises that you will make good on what you have said you will do. Take away our cynical, jaded, distrustful world and give us encouraging friends to not give up, to journey together, and to be near to the one who was born that day. And we pray in his name. Amen.